Several years ago, I had the opportunity uh, during one summer to spend part of that summer in the Himalayas living among a tribe of Tibetan Buddhists uh, known as the Kong. And this was the tribe that had rescued the Dalai Lama and ushered him out of the, uh, the country just before the communists took over several decades earlier. Well, on this particular day, uh, we were invited, our group was invited to a Tibetan nobleman's tent for lunch. And uh, I was just a little concerned about what would be served to eat and what I'd be obligated to eat during that lunch, as you could imagine. Well, as we sat down at the table that kind of circled around us, um, I noticed a big platter full of dried yak's meat that looked like five-year-old beef jerky. And I surveyed other dishes. There was a big bowl of sampa. That was a a Tibetan Buddhist dish uh, of barley grain mixed with yak's butter. Uh, There was yogurt that had been left to ferment in a sheep's stomach. So you can imagine my relief when I noticed a big bowl of sautéed mushrooms. I grabbed one and tried it. It wasn't bad. I served my plate. In fact, I told my friend Lawrence, who was with me, I said, you ought to try these. These are pretty tasty. Well, as I was uh, eating my sautéed mushrooms, Lawrence decided to inquire the name of the dish. And then he burst into laughter. I looked at him. Once he got control, I said, what, Lawrence? What is it? He said, oh, duck, duck. Those aren't sautéed mushrooms. He said, that, that's sliced sheep's stomach. Oh, look carefully. Can you see the little cilia there in your plate? Now, needless to say, my meal was all but over at that point. You know, as concerned as I was over what I might be served at that meal, my concern pales in comparison to the concern an Israelite would have over what he might be served at a meal. You see, according to Jewish uh, law, the Mosaic law, uh, eating the wrong things could actually defile a person and keep them from engaging with their God. Now, to see exactly what I mean by that, you're going to have to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11. Chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus is this morning we attempt to digest the confusing, weird dietary laws of the nation of Israel. You can follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals on the earth. Now, we need to stop there because we immediately have a question, don't we? I mean, as you read that, we're confronted with, why would God choose certain animals that His people should eat and other animals they shouldn't eat? Well, as Westerners, aware of proper uh, hygiene and healthy eating habits, and we just naturally uh, conclude that the dietary laws were given to Israel in, in order to keep them from eating something that might be unhealthy or harmful to them. I mean, it's just like when you tell your kids, no, don't fill up on chips, eat your veggies. God tells His kids, this is what is good and nutritious for you, and this is not. 
But if you read that into these dietary laws, you'll miss the whole point of the food laws given to Israel. In fact, everything that God tells Moses and Aaron in chapter 11 we'll be looking at today actually flows out of what he's already said in chapter 10. So let's turn back and look at verse 9 in chapter 10. Notice it says, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. When we lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, I had a friend uh, who was an orthopedic surgeon. And early one Saturday morning, he called me up and said, Hey, Doug, if you can get down here to the hospital in the next 30 minutes, you can stand in and watch a hip replacement I'm doing. Well, I was fascinated at those things, and so I jumped at the opportunity, and I got down there in less than 10. Well, when I arrived, he handed me scrubs I put on. There were pants and a shirt I had to wear. He also handed me a surgical cap, a mask, and I had little booties for my shoes. And once I got all that garb on, we went and we scrubbed in. I did everything he did. I washed my hands. I washed up my arms like he did until I was clean and sterile. And then we walked in the OR, and immediately one of his assistants uh, grabbed this lead overcoat, weighed about 30 pounds, and told me I had to slip it on. So as I slipped my arms through, they, they latched it in the back. Uh, and my friend told me that that overcoat was there to protect me from any radiation admitted from the x-rays he'd be taking during the surgery. So the surgery began. It was fascinating. But, but after about, golly, 20 minutes carrying that 30, 40-pound lead overcoat, I mean, my back was hurting. Golly, how does he do this? About 30 minutes after that, I mean, I, I was having trouble standing up. And I was fortunate because it was about that time my friend spoke to his assistant and said, I think we're finished here. Why don't you close up? And he looked at me and said, Doug, I'll walk you out. Now, what I did at that point caused everybody in the OR to gasp out loud. I was so ready to get that 30-pound overcoat off of me that when he said that, I immediately reached up, ripped off my mask and cap, and with this hand started unlatching that overcoat to take it off when my friend said, Doug, stop! This is a sterile environment! You see, by, by taking off that surgical garb, I was exposing the entire operating room to potential contamination. Now, it was at that point, I'm, I could have argued, well, I hadn't been sick in years. I mean, I'm not contagious. In fact, I'm pretty healthy. I mean, I exercise regularly. I eat properly. But none of that really mattered, did it? Why? Because I wasn't sterile. See, it didn't matter how healthy I was. The OR was a sterile environment. Now, that incident really reveals three states of hygiene, if you will. There is sterile, and there is healthy, and there is sick. 
Now, the OR is off limits to any person who's sick. The operating room is for healthy people, surgeons, who've gone through the process of scrubbing in so that they could become sterile. And knowing the difference between the three can save a life. Now, with that in mind, you need to know that to comprehend the dietary food laws, we have to be aware of identifying three different things. Things that, you could say, are holy. Things that are common. And things that are unclean. Turn back to that passage in Deuteronomy 10, verse 9. Notice it says, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. Now, holy is the opposite of unholy, just like clean is the opposite of unclean. In fact, the word holy, it means whole or complete. The word holy, that's the word used to describe, well, the abode of God, where, where God is. Um, you could say God is holy. Now, for something to become holy, it has to be set apart by God. It can't automatically become holy. It has to be set apart by God. Now, the tabernacle was set apart by God and therefore declared holy, so the tabernacle was considered sacred space. And the commonplace cannot enter sacred space any more than a healthy surgeon can enter the OR without first scrubbing in and becoming sterile. Now, when something is described as unholy, it doesn't mean that it's wrong or it's bad or that it's sinful. Unholy simply means that which is common. Common. That which is usual. That which is typical. Now, from God's perspective, very few things are holy. Almost everything else in this world is considered unholy. So probably a better way of translating the word unholy uh, that removes any idea of wrong or right, moral or immoral, would be the word common. So you could say that common is to the tabernacle what healthy is to the sterile OR. Now, things that are unholy are common. They describe the same thing are divided into two categories, things that are clean and things that are unclean. Now, when you think of clean and unclean, you don't need to think of moral versus immoral. It's not talking about spick and span versus dirty. I mean, in fact, you could say that holy is to unholy what Sterile in the OR is to healthy. And you could say that clean is to unclean what healthy is to sick. 
So everything that is outside the realm of holy is unholy or common. And things that are common are either clean or unclean. So really, unholy, common, clean things is describing the same thing. Does that make sense to you? Now, it's only these unholy, common, clean things that can become holy. Remember, unclean things have to become clean first before they can be declared holy. And it's only that which is holy that can engage with God. So as we come to Leviticus 11, uh, we discover that in chapters 11 through 16, God is going to give us a list of things that are unholy, common, clean things. He's going to tell us that list as it pertains to diet in chapter 11, as it pertains to childbirth in chapter 12, as it pertains to disease and fungus in 13 and 14, as it pertains to bodily discharges in 15, all leading up to the Day of Atonement in 16. So with that framework in mind, let's jump into the text. So the first thing God talks about are foods that Israel can and cannot eat. He mentions things that can defile you by eating. Now, you need to also know that by dictating what Israel could and couldn't eat, God is forcing the nation of Israel to live as a very distinct group of people. And because relationships, well, they're easily formed over shared meals. It's, it's far more difficult to form a friendship with someone you can't share food or drink. So by dictating what they eat and what they can drink, God is restricting Israel from assimilating into the surrounding culture. So God is going to declare certain things clean and okay to eat, certain things that are unclean and not okay to eat. So as it pertains to eating land animals, look at verse 3, listen to what God says. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have a cloven have cloven hooves is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cub and does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud and does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, it's unclean to you. Now, to the dismay of the boys of Duck Dynasty, God is saying everything you kill shouldn't be eaten. need to know that. It's okay to eat things that have a split hoof that chew the cub. Cud. So, uh, in other words, mutton would be okay, but camel would not because the camel doesn't have a split hoof. Uh, beef would be okay, but pork would not because though the pig has a split hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. Now, now, when it comes to eating sea creatures, look at verse 9. God says this, These you may eat of all that are in the water, whatever is in the water that has fins and scales, you may eat. But all in the sea and in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, 
They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh. You shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. In other words, they could eat any fish that has fins and scales. Therefore, sardines would be okay, but catfish and lobsters would not. Catfish wouldn't be okay because it doesn't have scales, and lobsters wouldn't be okay because they don't have fins. Now, when it comes to flying creatures, notice what God says, verse 13. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten, the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the uh, seagull, and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl, the uh, white owl, the jack draw, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, and the bat were all off limits, thank goodness. Now, did you notice anything in common with that list of animals? They're all birds of prey. And they were considered unclean because they have contact with dead animals. But, but they also eat the blood of these dead animals, so they were doubly unclean. But all other birds are declared clean, so you could eat chicken or you could eat quail. You remember the nation of Israel? Uh, they consumed quail while they were going through the wilderness. Now, I need to warn you. If you've got a hankering for insects, what comes next is going to disappoint you. There are only three that are permissible. Notice what he says in verse 20. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above the feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, the grasshopper after its kind. So he declares insects that have legs that are jointed that allow them to leap as clean. So you could eat locusts, crickets, or grasshoppers, but you couldn't eat ants, roaches, or ants, roaches or spiders. Those were off limits. Now, somebody gave me a good piece of advice years ago. They said the key to a good diet is to learn to love the things that are good for you and hate the things that are bad for you. Well, I wouldn't have any problem hating sautéed spiders or roasted cockroaches. It would be loving the grasshoppers, the locusts, and the crickets that would give me some concern. Well, you need to know that now God transitions from things that defile by eating to things that can defile you simply by touching. In other words, it's not just eating something that can declare you unclean. Touching, having contact with the wrong thing, can defile you as well, such as touching a dead carcass of an animal. In fact, in verse 24 and following, he says you're not permitted to touch any kind of dead creature, whether it's clean or unclean. In, fact, in other words, if you touch the carcass of a uh, creature that God had declared clean, well, it doesn't matter because it's dead, you are defiled. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Samson ate the honey out of the carcass of the lion? 
Well, he defiled himself. Now, you've got to remember that clean was not an issue of moral versus immoral. I mean, just like a healthy person wouldn't be allowed to walk into the OR without first scrubbing in, an unclean person would not be allowed to make a sacrifice to God without first becoming clean. So if you touch a dead animal, what are you to do? Well, the passage goes on and tells us that, well, you have to leave the camp of Israel. You have to bathe yourself thoroughly. You have to wash your clothes. And you're not permitted to go back into camp until sundown. Then you could go back in. But notice, God gets more specific. He states things that can become defiled by just contact with something that's dead, a dead creeping thing. Verse 29, these also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. So he prohibits the touching of dead reptiles and rodents, but it's more than just touching. He gets very specific in the next verse. He says, Anything on which any of them falls when they're dead shall be unclean, whether it's any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water, mean clean thoroughly, washed, and it shall be unclean till the evening, then it shall be declared clean. So he goes on to say, in some cases, a pot or an oven has to be completely destroyed if, say, they find, find a dead rat inside it. In other cases, if that dead animal comes in contact with grain that's used uh, for food, the grain is declared unclean, it has to be thrown out. But if it comes in contact with grain that's used in planting, that grain is declared clean and it can be planted. Now, the big question in everyone's mind as we go through these laws is it why? I mean, why would God burden his people with these arbitrary food laws? I mean, what is the point? Well, that's been the question that's been passed down through the ages. Why these laws? And many suggestions have been made by a number of theologians. I mean, some have suggested that uh, the reason you have clean and unclean animals, that the unclean animals were really a part of cultic um, practices in Canaan at that time. And it's true that a number of the animals God declares unclean were used in pagan practices, and they were just naturally, you think, that's off limits to the Israelis. But... In those pagan practices, they even sacrifice clean animals at times. So it's not consistent all the way across the board. Others have suggested that really uh, what's clean and unclean is symbolic of the way the nation of Israel should conduct itself. In other words, the chewing of the cud uh, should be an example to the nation of the fact that they need to be meditating on the Scripture. And the healthy eating habits of the pig were a reminder to them of uh, immoral uh, filth and immoral behavior. And though you can make that work for a number of the clean and unclean animals, it, it doesn't carry through across the board. It's inconsistent. 
the one that is probably most consistent from one end to the other is that the classifications were made clean and unclean because they're just arbitrary. In other words, there's no explanation why something's clean and something's unclean other than God declared it so. He decreed it so. God must be teaching His people the value of obedience to what He's commanded. Now, the most popular view is that the distinction between clean and unclean were made uh, based on hygiene. And as you read the food laws, it's easy to see the benefit of following uh, some of these hygienic practices. In fact, when the Black Death spread across Europe, it spread uh, quickly among the general population, but hardly spread at all through the Jewish population. And the reason was attributed to these hygienic laws. And other people have suggested that the reason a pig was not allowed to be eaten is to keep the people from getting trichinosis by not cooking their pork enough. But, I mean, when it comes to beef, it's just as dangerous as transferring E. coli or salmonella. And if the food laws uh, were that beneficial to hygiene, why didn't Jesus uh, incorporate them uh, in the New Testament among the church? I mean, the people in the first century A.D. were just as susceptible to the same diseases as those who lived in the 15th century B.C. So why did God declare certain animals clean and others unclean? Well, we Westerners want to know why. But did you know, in a Jewish way of thinking, why was really irrelevant? A Jewish follower of Yahweh would not have wrestled with trying to answer the question, why, but what? What pattern, what picture is illuminated here? You see, I think God declared certain animals clean and certain animals unclean as a visual aid, an object lesson, if you will. You see, having identified the things that can defile you by eating and then the things that can defile you by touching, he concludes this entire chapter with wisdom acquired by discerning. Look at verse 44. He says this, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourself. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, did you notice two times in that passage, God declares himself holy. And if we're made in the image of God, it makes sense that God would want his people to be holy as well. Now, you've got to remember that word holy means whole or complete. But when it's used to describe God, it means completely pure and distinctively separate from his creation. Now, when that word is used to describe man, it means something different. It means man is to, be, to separate himself for God's purposes to dedicate himself for God's purposes. 
I mean, that's why God commands Israel, you shall therefore consecrate yourself. Remember how Neil defined it a few minutes ago? It means to separate yourself, to set yourself apart for God's purposes, for His use. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, every time a meal was served, it was this visual reminder that Israel was to be clean before God. And eventually, God would make them holy. So just as the dietary laws distinguish between clean and unclean animals, every meal was a reminder that God has distinguished us as a nation, uh, uh, separated us apart to be clean so that one day He could make us holy. I mean, can you see it? The dietary food laws were really a perpetual reminder of God's grace. In other words, did God choose Israel because they were so spiritually pure? Hardly. I mean, they worshipped other gods. Uh, They did evil in the sight of God. Did He choose them because, well, they were powerful and numerous and they were so promising? I mean, no way. The nation began as the smallest, one of the most obscure nations on the planet. They had done nothing to earn God's favor. So every meal in its preparation and in its enjoyment became a tangible reminder of God's grace that had been extended to them. In the same way, every time you pray in Jesus' name, that should be a reminder of the grace that's been extended to you that you can enter into a conversation with God without having to go through a ritual to get there. By the way, did you know holiness was not something the sacrificial system and the laws could deliver on? I mean, all the law could do is declare something clean temporarily. Now, remember, only clean things can become holy. Unclean things need to become clean first before they can become holy. And only that which is holy can engage with God. Therefore, fast forward 900 years, and the prophet Ezekiel says this, God says this to the prophet Ezekiel, I will take care, I I will, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. You see, true holiness can only be done as a work from God. Remember, He is the only thing, only one that can declare something holy. And it'll come about in a man's life as he allows himself to be transformed from the inside out. Did you notice? God says, I will give you a new heart, which points to a future new covenant that's coming. That's not inaugurated by the blood of bulls and goats, but will be inaugurated by the blood of of a dying Messiah who will come one day. And so today, 
The new, through the new covenant, the dietary laws really have no practical purpose, benefit, uh, because the blood of the Messiah has already been offered to rescue us from all our sin. And so he has already given us a new heart. Did you notice he puts his spirit inside of us? He has made us holy from the inside out so that engagement with God can be as simple as engagement with a friend. In fact, I want you to see what Peter says about it in 1 Peter chapter 6. Here's the way he describes it. You also are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the spiritual sacrifice he speaks of here, he's he's really talking about the acts of service that you do. When you serve your neighbor, when you volunteer to be a greeter, when you share your faith with a colleague at work. Now, notice he continues, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, can you see what God has done? I mean, but through the sacrifice of Messiah, Jesus, God has not just made you clean, he's made you holy. Notice what he describes you as. As a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special people. He calls you friend. I mean, that's amazing. So how do you engage with God in a way that makes you a friend? I mean, because of what Christ did on the cross... A door has been flung wide open that you can walk through to be declared not just clean, but holy. So how do you walk through that door? It's not by going to church. It's not by reading your Bible more. It's not by any act of service of giving money or volunteering. There's only one way you can walk through that door, and that is to admit your need to be forgiven. I mean, to, to say to God or to Jesus, I trust you to give me what I cannot earn myself. Forgiveness for my wrongdoing and eternal life with you now while I'm on earth and in the future in heaven. It's as simple as that. Let's pray. Maybe you've never walked through that door. Maybe you've never thought about your relationship with God quite like that. You know, you can begin that relationship and walk through that door by just admitting your need to be forgiven. In fact, you could say this to God. As I say it, you could say it silently to yourself. Jesus, I trust you to give me what I cannot earn myself. Forgiveness for my wrongdoing and eternal life with you now on earth and in heaven in the future. Would you show yourself to me this next week? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if that's something you've decided to do, 
walk through that door, we'd love to hear about it. In fact, I'd love to hear about it personally and would love for you to stop by the hearth room, third door on the left, and communicate it down there. They would love to put some material in your hands. And if you came prepared to give, offering boxes, of course, out in the hall. And thanks for coming. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.